And Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we ask, O Lord, that by Your grace, we would not just be hearers of the Word, but we ask that by Your grace, we would be doers of the Word. So we ask, O Lord, that by by Your Word, You would correct us, You would instruct us, that You would strengthen us, that You would edify us, that You would nourish our souls and direct us once again to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that You would purify us in this time, that You would convict us in this time, and that we would know Your peace and Your grace as we come to Your Word. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 45. On the first Sunday of every month, we study the Psalms. Um, We've only skipped a couple. We've just been going straight through. We're in Psalm 45 today. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 45. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, They're available for you if you don't already have a Bible. Um, Please feel free to take it home if you don't have one at home. But we'll be looking at Psalm 45 today. Uh, I don't know what your Bibles say, but in my Bible, um, the the Bible that that I've got up here in the pulpit, this psalm is titled, A Song Celebrating the King's Marriage. A Song Celebrating the King's Marriage. Marriage is actually the first institution that God ordained and established on earth. It was instituted in Genesis chapter 2, which was prior to the fall, which happened in Genesis chapter 3. And that's significant that God gave the institution of marriage before the fall because it reminds us that marriage was not something that happened as a result of the fall, but that it was part of God's original perfect plan for all of creation. Uh, It was a perfect gift that reflected God's love uh, for humanity. It was an expression not only of God's goodness and God's grace and His love for humanity, but it was also an expression of God's wisdom. And so for this reason, every wedding ceremony and, and every marriage, every marriage that exists even to this day, is a reminder of God's sovereign blessing upon creation. And it's a reminder that marriage is part of His design. So we now come to Psalm 45, a psalm in our study that is very much unlike uh, most other psalms, or at least many other psalms. Um, again, what I said, you know, the, the title in my Bible is A Song Celebrating the King's Marriage. Uh, what's interesting is that the three psalms prior to this psalm, the three psalms that kind of led up to this psalm, uh, were all psalms of lament. They were all songs of, uh, you know, psalms that would have been sung and, and rehearsed when a person was in distress or in deep trouble. But this psalm, Psalm 45, is a psalm of joyous anticipation and celebration. And, and also, it's worth noting, I think, that if you've ever studied uh, the Song of Psalms, uh, the Song of Songs, it flows very similarly to that book of the Bible. Now some, uh, when they study this, uh, this 
particular psalm have argued that uh, the psalm is referring to King Solomon. The problem with that uh, is, first of all, that the language is so exalted. The language is just so lofty. It's so, so high. One commentator who was arguing against the case for the king in this psalm being Solomon, he noted that, quote, either we have here a piece of poetical exaggeration far beyond the limits of poetic license, or a greater than Solomon is here, end quote. And it's Obvious to you, I hope, that I take that latter view, that this is talking about a king beyond uh, Solomon's greatness. Uh, It seems evident that the king mentioned in this psalm is actually an ideal king. Uh, Indeed, it is of the one who is the king of kings. While all the psalms point to Jesus as the Messiah in one way or another, you, you can draw a line from the psalms to Jesus in one way or another, A few of them are written entirely about the Messiah. And this is one of them. This is a messianic psalm. That's what you'd call it. There's a long-standing tradition, even in Judaism, that this psalm is prophetic in nature and character and that it deals with the Messiah. But it's addressed to a king and his bride, but it doesn't name either the king or his bride. Now, in order to fully grasp the meaning of this psalm. It's important for us to understand the rituals that led up to a wedding, the ancient customs of betrothal and marriage that were practiced by the Jews. Because before getting married, a couple would take this first step of betrothal. Uh, for an undesignated amount of time. It it depended from marriage to marriage how long it was going to be. But since we don't practice betrothal in in our culture, I thought it might be helpful to give you guys a working definition of the term. So I googled um, Jewish betrothal definition, and the first definition gives us this. It says, quote, "...the first part of the two processes of Jewish marriage, which creates the legal relationship without the mutual obligations." End quote. And that's a very accurate definition. It was a formal act. Betrothal was a formal act that would, sometimes it would be arranged by um, the parents of the bride and the groom-to-be, but marriages weren't always arranged by parents. And sometimes it would be arranged by parents, but only because uh, the children who were uh, to be wed um, requested Uh, or urge their parents toward a certain person. So we might be tempted in our culture to to liken the stage of betrothal to being engaged. That's what we do in uh, in our culture. We we get engaged. The the uh, husband-to-be buys a a diamond ring, an engagement ring, presents it to the woman, and they are engaged. And we might be tempted to think the betrothal is similar to that, but it was actually more than that. It was uh, far more formal um, than an engagement. It was actually legally binding. Um, there's no aspect of engagement that is legally binding. But betrothal was a legally binding step that was taken before witnesses and in which the, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be would exchange oaths before God and to one another. Uh, the couple was not to consummate their marriage during the, uh, the stage of betrothal, however, even though they were legally committed to one another. Uh, and to break it off would actually require another legal process called divorce. 
This is the relationship that Joseph and Mary had uh, when Mary became pregnant with Jesus. They were betrothed to be married. Uh, Finally, it's worth noting that sometimes the betrothal period uh, would last for several years. Um, just depended on the couple. Sometimes a couple would be betrothed while they were very young and they wanted to wait until they were a little bit older. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were betrothed at an older age. It just varied from case to case. But when the day of the wedding would come and the period of betrothal was over, the celebration would begin with the friends and the family members and the attendants of the bride all gathering together at the home of the bride as she would be preparing herself with her best clothes and with her finest jewelry, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, at the same time, while the bride has her people, her friends and family at at her house, meanwhile, at the same time, the friends and family members and attendants of the groom would be gathering at the house of the groom. And once he was ready there would be something that looked like a parade. Something that looked like a, like a parade marching through the streets, a procession through the streets uh, with the groom-to-be leading the way to the home of the bride to pick her up, to, to bring her back to his house. Once they would arrive at the home of the bride, the friends and the families and attendants from both parties would come together and they would have this procession through the streets back to the groom's home where the marriage would be celebrated with a wedding feast which would feature all of the best foods and wines that the, uh, that the groom had. Uh, we read about the wedding in Cana where Jesus performed His first miracle of turning water into wine. We read about that in John chapter 2. Uh, we read there of enormous uh, water pots being used for storing the wine that Jesus provided. Uh, that gives us an idea of how extravagant and how long-lasting these wedding feasts were. Sometimes a wedding feast would last a week. Sometimes it would last two weeks. It just depends on how uh, wealthy, uh, how well-to-do the groom was. But we have to keep all of these elements and, and understand all these movements. The, the bride starting at her house. The groom starting at his house. The groom coming to get the bride and everybody marching, proceeding back to the groom's house. We have to understand all of these elements as we study the 45th Psalm. That's going to help us understand this Psalm a lot better. Uh, but we also must remember that this Psalm ultimately points to Christ and to His bride, the church. The point of this psalm is that marriage is a reminder that the church is Christ's bride. And it's a reminder that Christ is glorified in His choosing of a bride, in His granting great privileges to her, and in giving Himself to and for her as a blessing that endures forever. So the psalm begins actually with just a one-verse introduction. If you have your Bibles open to Psalm 45, we'll start with verse 1. The psalmist writes, For the choir director according to the Shashanim, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now to say that the... The, the, the wedding, the, the theme at hand um, is a good theme. For him to say that, that's really kind of an understatement. 
Um, if it had been a common earthly king that he was talking about, it might have been described as just a, it's a good theme. Uh, but when we consider that this is ultimately pointing us not just to an earthly king, but to the king of kings, we have to understand that this is much, much more than just a, a good theme. This theme that he's going to be writing of in this psalm is the greatest theme known to man. The day when the Lord Jesus Christ takes His bride, the church, to Himself. No wonder the psalmist's words in this psalm are just overflowing with joy and excitement, even from the outset here in verse 1. But from here, the psalmist immediately moves to the first section of the psalm, which offers words of praise both to and about the king which we find in verses 2-9, to where the psalm continues with the psalmist saying, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh, and aloes, and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now it would be strange, if not just kind of awkward maybe, if not downright awkward, if these words were just being written of, of a regular earthly king. Uh, as we noted, they would be so exaggerated that it would almost be nonsensical. But we'd have to say that the psalmist, if he were doing that, would just be going over the top with hyperbole if he was only writing about Solomon or some earthly king. We'd say that his flattery was so excessive to say that the king, that this earthly king was fairer than the sons of men. Because a normal earthly king would have been counted among the sons of men. But while some believe that the psalmist is starting by describing the beauty of the king's appearance in a physical sense, the truth is that in God's eyes, physical beauty isn't really all that important. In fact, physical beauty is far, far less worthy of praise than is a man's character. It's better for a man to be seen as faithful. It's better for a man to be seen as true. It's better for a man to be seen as righteous and humble than it is that he be seen as physically attractive. And Jesus is all of these things. He's all of these great and godly characteristics personified and exemplified to the highest degree. These are the things that make Jesus beautiful. Not what He looks like, but who He is. His character is what makes Jesus beautiful. This is 
Actually, one of the reasons uh, that I am not very fond of pictures or physical representations of Jesus, in fact. Uh, Because if you take any picture of Jesus, even great ones, even famous ones, if you take any picture of Jesus, they can't even possibly begin to capture all these qualities that make Jesus beautiful. Instead, what they try to do, what pictures and physical representations try to do, is make Him physically beautiful. But Scripture actually indicates that He wasn't physically beautiful, but that He was humble and and lowly and not something that our eyes would necessarily uh, find attractive or beautiful. No, it's His character's. Uh, characteristics that make him beautiful. It's his attributes. And thus, all a picture of Jesus can do is present a representation of, of Jesus that's actually far, far less uh, than what Jesus truly is. Now, let's say that somebody were making a, a picture of, of you, and you look at it and you say, that, that doesn't look anything like me. That, that doesn't resemble me at all. Would you be pleased or honored by that? I mean, think about this for a second. Do you think there might be a reason that God gave us words to learn about Jesus and by which to know Jesus rather than giving us pictures? Would it have been possible for God to have ordained that we would have pictures and words? Sure, why not? I mean, there were people who were artistically talented then. You know, there there are hieroglyphics and things. So why didn't he give us both pictures and words? Because we don't need to know what Jesus looked like. We need to see his beauty in who he was. The king is glorious and worthy of our adoration because of his character, who he is. And because of the mighty deeds that he has done. The psalmist next moves to point out that the king is glorious because of his military might. The king is described as this mighty warrior who straps a sword to his side. He tells us of the king riding on a horse in glorious majesty and splendor. The king is this victorious warrior who has triumphed for the cause of justice and meekness, truth and righteousness. His enemies have no chance against him because every single one of the arrows he fires is going to find its target every single time. Is that talking about an earthly king? Or is this talking about Jesus? We might be tempted to wonder because from a completely purely physical perspective, it didn't look like Jesus was shooting arrows into the hearts of his enemies. It didn't look like Jesus' enemies were defeated. Instead, what the Gospels tell us is that his enemies successfully plotted and schemed and conspired against him, which all culminated in him being handed over to Pontius Pilate, who ultimately uh, went with the crowd and allowed him to be sentenced to death on a cross. But in terms of justice, and in terms of meekness or humility and righteousness, Jesus did indeed triumph. He did indeed prevail. Because despite being tempted as we are, He remained without sin even when He was scorned. 
even when he was treated harshly, even when he was treated and tried unjustly. Ultimately, he didn't come to defeat men, although he will deal with them in time. Rather, he came to defeat death and the power of sin over his people. And he triumphed because he never once sinned. And thus his work, his sacrifice, was a sacrifice without spot or blemish. The psalmist continues by declaring this in verse 6. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. There's no kingdom that you can say that about except Christ's kingdom. But many have tried to dismiss this verse right here as not being a literal reference to God, arguing that the psalmist was trying to say something kind of along the lines of the king's throne is like uh, God's throne or that God would be worthy of the king's throne or your throne is so high uh, you know, that even God could sit on it or maybe even something like long live the king. But these verses, verses 6 and 7, are actually quoted in the New Testament. They're quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where we read, we read, we read this. It says, But of the Son of Jesus, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Do you see that? He's quoting from this psalm. The author of Hebrews is sure to make it very clear for us, or for anyone who's reading it, that he was referring to none other than Jesus. That's one of the ways that we know that this is a messianic psalm. That this psalm is about Jesus. Uh, That it's about the King of kings, not just some earthly king. Not only would these words not be suitable, and they'd be a, a huge exaggeration for an earthly king, but we find this psalm actually quoted in reference to Jesus. Because Jesus is the King above all kings. This King stands unique above all others and opposes all forms of wickedness. What earthly king can we say that about? He rules righteously. And He does so forever. Since every king has an obligation unto God to rule in righteousness, these verses actually serve as a good reminder to them of that obligation. Kings are meant to oppose wickedness in the way that they rule. Kings are meant to rule righteously. The authority that they have is the authority that God has given unto them. No more and no less. And He has only given them the authority to rule righteously in accordance with God's perfect law. They are to punish evildoers, and they are to protect those who seek to do good, according to Romans chapter 13. And so in light of this reminder, in light of these truths, what a terrible day it will be for the governing officials around the world who have sought to disturb and disrupt God's church on earth over the past two years when they have to stand before God in judgment one day, only to realize that they never had the authority to prevent God's people from gathering and faithfully worshiping. 
By the way, husbands, this is a reminder for us too. There's a rule in here for us too. We're subject to the same standard to rule over our homes in righteousness and to hate wickedness. Husbands, you are to govern, you are to manage your homes in a way that promotes godliness. How blessed is the home where the fear of God is found in the Father. Parents, parents, we got to raise our sons to be this kind of husband as well. Not just for the husband to be like this, but to teach his son to value and to love the same things so that one day when they move out and have their own families, their homes will one day be blessed in this manner too. And similarly, parents, raise your daughters to be attracted to a man like this. If a father governs his home with an iron fist and in an unrighteous fashion, your daughter or daughters will never desire a man who claims to love God. But if you parent her wisely, and if you raise her with grace and love and righteousness, by God's grace, perhaps she'll see the goodness of choosing a man who fears and lives in the fear of God. Do you see the way that the psalmist admires a king? Indeed, the king, because of the way he governs? Pray that you would see this beauty in Christ as well. And as you do, pray that your children will as well because of the way God is using you to raise them and to disciple them. The description of the king up until this point as a, as a mighty warrior and as a just and righteous king who leads in justice, truth, and righteousness, it may remind us of a description of the king the same king, later on in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 19, John the Apostle writes of what he has shown. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress with the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the king being described in Psalm 45 as well. This psalm, up until this point, has been a picture of the psalmist speaking to and about the king in the highest terms possible as the king has been on his way to the home of the bride while the bride has been waiting in anxious and joyful anticipation of his arrival at her home. But while she feels joy... And while she feels a sense of anxious anticipation and excitement about what is coming, I don't think that we could blame a bride-to-be for also feeling a sense of 
trepidation as she knows that the arrival of the groom will mean that she is leaving behind her home and the life that she had lived under the headship of her father forever. And so it's at this point that the psalmist turns his attention now to the bride, offering her three pieces of advice, three suggestions, wise counsel that will help to ensure that her future with the king will be prosperous and blessed. So we read in verses, uh, Psalm 45, verses 10 through 12, Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Now these three pieces of counsel are excellent pieces of advice. And because the church is the bride of Christ, these are not only great insights and pieces of advice for a woman who is preparing to to marry a man uh, in a literal sense, but they're also beneficial to us as Christians in our walk with the Lord as the bride of Christ. So the first word of counsel that he, that the psalmist offers unto the bride-to-be is to live in the present and not in the past. To live in the present and not in the past. He says, forget your people and your father's house. As children of God who have been adopted We haven't always been God's children. Nobody is born as God's child among us. We were born, like everyone else, as children of wrath. That's the term, that's the phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2 in reference to uh, the condition into which we were born, our natural condition. The devil was our father, spiritually speaking, and we were conceived and we were born in sin. But by His grace, God has adopted us into His family. Uh, By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He called us out of darkness. This is the sovereign, effectual calling that calls us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And thus we crossed over from death into life. But the temptation in our new house to live the way that we did in our old home, the way that we lived prior to our adoption as children of God. Those temptations are still very real. When God appeared to Abram in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, His call to Abraham, Abram was this, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Friends, this is our calling as well. This is our calling as well. Not that we leave our biological family in the dust, at least not necessarily, but our priorities are changed. Our loyalties are changed. We, we were raised being loyal to earthly parents as our supreme authority, but God calls us out of that land and into a new one where He is the supreme authority. And He is our top priority in life. We're no longer living in the house of the devil. We have been adopted as children of God and we now live in God's house, in His family. One of the hardest truths that Jesus ever spoke in His ministry had to do 
with the relationship we have to our biological families and the priorities that we must have toward them and toward Christ. He said, Jesus said this, He said that He came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. He said that if anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. It's from Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Now let's be clear about this. Obviously, Jesus was not saying that we're to hate, uh, in, a, in a literal sense, anyone. No, we're called to love our neighbors. Why would we be called to, to hate ourselves if we're called to love our neighbors? No, we're, we're not called to hate anyone in a literal sense. The call to love and to believe in Christ doesn't nullify uh, the command to honor your father and mother. We're to honor all people, is what Peter tells us in his book. What Jesus was teaching in both of those passages is that, in James Montgomery Boyce's words, quote, no human relationships must be allowed to restrain us from being a wholehearted follower after Jesus if we would be his, end quote. And so with that said, being faithfully obedient to Christ requires that we sometimes draw very hard, very difficult, but very sure lines with our families in order to maintain Christ as our highest priority in life. Rather than being faithful to the parents who raised us first and foremost, our highest priority as Christians is to be faithful to Christ. And so to that end, we must establish boundaries that uphold a hierarchy of priorities that starts with practicing faithful obedience unto Christ as our Lord, as our King. To be faithful not only to Him, but to His Gospel and to His Word. If we are to be Christ's bride, Christ must always be our highest priority in life. What comes after that? Well, if you're married, your spouse is next. Before your biological family that you were raised with, your spouse comes next. Third, your children. Next, your Christian relationships. After that, your vocation. If you keep your priorities lined up properly, everything will fall into place. Your life is going to be a lot easier and you will avoid a lot of heartache and problems. As soon as you start to mix these priorities up, especially number one, let me just tell you, problems will ensue every single time. And I've seen it happen enough and I've experienced it enough myself to say that problems will ensue just about every time, but for sure every time you mess with number one. Charles Spurgeon commented on this piece of counsel saying this. He said, quote, To renounce the world is not easy, but it must be done by all who are affianced to the king. For a divided heart he cannot endure. It would be misery to the beloved one as well as dishonor to her Lord. End quote. So the psalmist's first piece of advice to the bride here is to live in the present. 
to live in the present and to leave the past behind. And as Christians, the application is also to live in the present as a child of God and to leave the past, who you were before believing in Christ, who you were before coming to Him in faith, to leave that behind. The second piece of counsel that the psalmist offers to the bride is to bow down to the Lord. Some translations say, honor your Lord. I think it's communicating the same thing. Uh, I think what the psalmist is trying to communicate here is is just worship. Uh, He has worship in mind here. But needless to say, this is something uh, far beyond, something greater than the normal respect uh, and submission that a bride is to give unto her husband, even if he is uh, an earthly king. Um, this bride, this, this royal daughter, sees that her husband is also her Lord and therefore is worthy of her worship. Uh, bowing down is always a posture of worship in the Bible. Now, as a bride loves and submits to her husband, the church is to love and submit to Christ. Remember that marriage is designed to be a picture of the gospel. It's an illustration of the relationship that that exists between Christ and the church. Uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So do you see how marriage is supposed to serve as a constant reminder of Christ's relationship to those for whom he died, his bride, the church? Now again, husbands, you only have the authority that God has given you. You don't have the authority to instruct your wives to defy God or to lead her to defy God. Uh, Just like Christ would never lead us to defy Him. Live in the present. Leave who you were. Leave the past behind. Worship the Lord in all that you do. And third, live in light of what's to come. That's the third piece of advice. Live in light of what's to come. Look to the future. Now in the psalm, the bride is told to consider all that is uh, given to her, all the, all the benefits and blessings that come to her because of her relationship to the king. Not only will she always have the love and the care of the king, uh, but the psalmist writes in verse 12, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Now, this is basically just to say that the day is coming when she will be honored by the nations because of her relationship to the King. As Christ's church, as those for whom Christ died to ransom and to redeem from the clutches of hell and from the power of sin, we must be as committed and as surrendered to Christ as this bride was instructed to be to her husband to be the king. The only kind of church that's relevant to the world is the church that is faithfully submitted to Christ. And the only kind of Christian that's relevant to the world is the Christian who is faithfully submitted to Christ and walking in obedience to Him. 
The psalmist continues, verses 13 to 16. He writes, The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. These few verses right here, uh, the psalmist is just describing the procession to the home of the king. He has, uh, he's arrived at the home of the bride. Uh, the, the parties have, have merged and they are now proceeding on the way back to the home of the king. Remember, the way that it worked is the bride would be at uh, her home, the groom would be at his home, the groom would there'd be a procession to the bride's house and there would be a combined procession uh, from the bride's house back to the groom's house. So that's what's happening in these verses. It starts with uh, the the bride being led out to the king and then walking the procession back to uh, the the groom-to-be's home. The king's daughter is all glorious within, he writes. Uh, He's describing her in light of her position. Why is she glorious? Because she is the bride of the King. In fact, as the church, we're the bride of the King of glory. Maybe you find it difficult to see the church this way, as as just being beautiful. I mean, if you look at the church online, it, it looks like a mosh pit. It doesn't look beautiful. It looks like chaos. It looks like division. Well, one of the ways to, to, to end the division is to recognize that truth doesn't divide. It's error that causes division. But, yes, the church is beautiful. And maybe you find it difficult to see the church that way, at least on this side of glory. But even the church, with all her faults and flaws on this side of glory, the invisible church, Yes, we have many problems, but we don't see ourselves. We don't see the church the way that God sees the church. He sees us, not in light of our sinfulness, not in light of the fights that we get on on social media and things like that. No, He sees us clothed in the beautiful garments of Christ's perfect, unblemished righteousness. And it's by Christ's merit that God sees us not only as glorious, but He sees us as flawless. Only because we're covered, indeed indeed we are clothed in Christ's own perfect righteousness. Now what might seem odd in this psalm is that the psalmist kind of stops with the procession in verse 15. He, he brings us up to the doors of the king's palace. He says they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter the king's palace. And it's almost as if the psalmist stops there and steps back and says, I'm just going to leave it at that. He's only told us about the ceremonial procession that, that leads up to this point. But perhaps it's fitting that he stops there. Since it's entirely true that we can't even begin to imagine the feast that's going on behind those doors. Indeed, 
The Apostle Paul tells us that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Words would not suffice. It's going to be that glorious. This is so much more than just pomp and circumstance and formality. No, what the psalmist is describing is so much more. He's describing the theme of the ages. Listen again to the parallels between marriage and this wonderful day when Christ is married to His bride. We read this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25-27. to 27. Paul now is addressing the obligation of husbands. He writes, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's how God sees the church. It's interesting to note that in verse 16, the pronouns you and your are masculine, which indicates that the psalmist has turned his attention once again back to the king. And as he speaks, he speaks a blessing over the marriage. But look at what he writes. He says, In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. And again, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ is bringing many sons to glory. What would you you call men who have been adopted by the king as sons but princes? The king's legacy, therefore, gets passed on from generation to to generation. The psalm ends with a personal vow from the psalmist. Look at verse 17 with me. The psalmist says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Friends, we exist for the glory of God. And our purpose is to both glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. But we don't want that blessing only for ourselves. We cannot desire that blessing only for ourselves. We have a duty and we have an obligation to pass it on. Pass it on to whoever's next. Pass it on to the next generation. Pass it on to our children who, Lord willing, by His grace, will grow up to do the same thing with their own children one day. In fact, this is the game plan that Christ laid out for us. We're supposed to be making disciples. If you don't have kids, you have friends. You have people that you see. You're supposed to, we're supposed to be making disciples. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And I'd say that our children... Uh, if you have children, that our children are the first people that should come to mind when you're thinking about discipleship. If it's not your children, if you don't have kids, uh, it, it's, it's your family members. It, it's people that, that don't know Christ who are around you. It's your neighbor. But we must be committed to this, to passing this blessing of knowing God, of, of enjoying and enjoying Him forever and glorifying Him, we want to pass that on to others around us. 
I don't think it's inappropriate to ask you if you are of the same mind with the psalmist here. Are you committed to every generation praising His name? Are you committed to what the psalmist was committed to? Do we desire to know Him and to make Him known? Do we desire to see His name remembered and honored for the next generation and for generations to come? Now, of course, we believe that that God is sovereign over salvation and that God must uh, call people with His sovereign effectual call. Of course, we believe that. But that doesn't nullify our responsibility to be faithful to share the Gospel in any sense, does it? No, we have a responsibility to love and to honor and to serve the Lord in all that we do, in how we treat our children, in how we treat our neighbors, in how we treat our spouses. Now, I'm blown away by people who basically come up with this argument that you, know, you don't want to disciple your kids, you don't want to influence them, you want to let them decide for themselves if they want to be Christians when they're old enough to do that. Now, why would you do that? Do you, do you let your kids decide whether or not they want to play in traffic? Do you let your kids decide whether or not they like the taste of poison? No, of course not. You, you want to protect them from things that would harm them. Now, if you would teach your children to protect their physical well-being by staying on the sidewalk and not playing in traffic, then why would you leave the decision of what they're going to be raised hearing and seeing to them? Why would, you, why would you not make their faith, the salvation of their soul, a priority as well? The, the argument is so silly, but it is so prevalent. It is so common. James Boyce notes this. He says, quote, Jesus came a first time to join us to Himself in a spiritual betrothal. He will come a second time to take us to Himself forever. End quote. Are you living your life in light of that truth? Are you living in a way that is preparing for this procession back to the groom's house? Would you be ready if he showed up tomorrow? Would you be ready if he showed up today? Because the truth is that if you are living in light of this truth, that Christ came to establish a spiritual betrothal with His bride, you'll also be busy preparing yourself for that glorious day by purifying yourself and by living every moment for the glory of God now. John says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Are you doing that? Are you trying to do that? Do you want to do that? We understand that none of us are going to get there on our own. Not on this side of glory. We're going to see Christ for who He is one day, and that's when we will become like He is. That's when the flesh nature will be put to death once and for all. But are you preparing yourself for that day by purifying yourself now? Because the day is coming when either He will return or... It'll just be your time to go home. Live for that day. Live for that day with joyful anticipation 
when you're welcomed into His home. Because in the end, the result of it all is that the anointed King, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be exalted with His bride. And He will be praised forever and ever because the church is Christ's bride and Christ is glorified in choosing her, in purifying her, in cleansing her, and in giving Himself to her and for her as a blessing that will endure forever. May we think and meditate upon that day often. And as we do, may we be devoted to this glorious God and King who has called and redeemed and purified us to be presented to Himself. And may we reflect His goodness and righteousness in our marriages in order that our marriages would be a beautiful illustration of the Gospel for the world for our neighbors, and for our kids. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder that this world is not all there is. And that even the most beautiful and even the most glorious things that we see on earth pale in comparison to what is yet to come on this glorious day when you call us home or when the groom brings us home. We thank you, O Lord, that you have drawn us to yourself. And we pray that by the the, the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, we would purify and prepare ourselves for that glorious day, for this glorious feast. Help us, O Lord, to live in the present and to leave the habits and the temptations that, uh, that we grew up with, that we, that we know from the world, help us to leave those things behind and to look to the future when our union with Christ will be the most glorious thing, more glorious than we can even imagine. Teach us, O Lord, to live for that day and for the glory of the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.